0: So, it's good to see you all again um, excited to continue walking through 1 uh, Thessalonians with you it's been a joy and a privilege and last week uh, we asked a question and we, uh, the question was is it worth trying to live a life pleasing to the Lord and our answer was yes, yes it's worth it uh, And that kind of is leading us into what we're going to talk about today, where Paul's going to give us a little bit more about why that is the case. Um, So as we get ready to receive the word, would you pray with me? Father, we do pray that you would focus our minds and our hearts right now There are a lot of things going on in our lives and as we've had this time of preparation as we've confessed our sin as we've received the assurance of pardon as we've confessed our faith father would you would you speak now to our hearts by your spirit would he do that work which you have promised he will do and to take from the wisdom and the knowledge and the goodness and the truth that is yours and would he and give it to us by his own power Father, would we receive that word as your spirit implants it in our souls, because it is to us salvation, and righteousness, and goodness, and truth. May this word be preached here this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I mentioned uh, last week I became a Christian in 1994, first day uh, before classes started my freshman year. It wasn't... Uh, through an evangelistic uh, like nobody was sharing the gospel with me it was really actually just I had been raised in the church um, and had been going to it my whole life I memorized a bunch of scripture but I didn't really understand what it meant to have Jesus as Lord of my life and I ended up coming into a point of personal crisis um the day before classes started, and so that's when I turned to Jesus, when I was in crisis. Um, Not unlike many of our own stories. And uh, I became involved in our campus ministry after that. And over the years, you know, uh, saw many people come and go in ministry. Um, And there was one guy, and we'll call him Bob. Um, Bob was, uh, Bob was a new convert. He did become a Christian in college, did not grow up churched. And, um, but he was very gifted, very charismatic. He was a great speaker. He was, um, he was very passionate, uh, very excited about what we were doing. Um, Came in the same time as me in the same uh, class. And over the course of the years, right, Bob um, gradually grew into bigger and bigger positions of leadership. And Um, to the point where in our junior year, Bob was, you know, leading large group talks and um, leading, you know, other small groups and and things like that in our ministry. And when we came back senior year for our uh, fall or our our pre-fall training, um, I expected to see him there and he wasn't there. And I asked one of our staff leaders why Bob wasn't there and he said, Bob um, has told us that he doesn't want to work with us anymore. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, Bob's decided that he really doesn't want Jesus at all. And he doesn't want to follow after anything. He, he's, he just said it was too much, right? It was too much. We were asking too much of him. But he also just really doesn't feel like it's worth it. And it can seem that way a lot of times, right? A lot of us, I mean, all of us, including myself, have asked the question over and over and over again, is it worth it, right? Because some days, let's be honest, right? Some days it sure doesn't feel like it's worth it. Um, It feels like it's super hard. Um, And so... The question we come back to, which is the question we were talking about last week and this week, is at the end of the day, is it actually worth it? And Paul is going to tell us here as we finish up this paragraph that, yes, it is worth it. And we said last week, we kind of wrapped up last week with this phrase, and this is going to be the outline for us this week, right? That it's worth giving everything you have because Jesus has given everything to you. Right? It's worth giving everything you have because you've been given everything in Jesus. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, Paul's going to describe in verses 5 to 10, Paul's going to describe how he has given everything he has. What was Paul's life and ministry like? Um, and so we're going to look at that and he's going to say, I gave everything that I had to you who were in Thessalonica. And then we're going to see why he did that. He did that because he recognized that Jesus has given him everything. And so he was able to minister out of that. And that's going to be in verses 11 to 12. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, And you'll notice in your uh, bulletin, there's a little outline here. And I want to talk about that just for a second. So when we study scripture... um, one of the great questions to ask yourself and one of the great things to do is like read a passage and and read through it a few times and start to do things like maybe you underline in your Bible or you highlight, highlight something uh, that's repeated, right? That's one thing that you can look for. And that kind of tell you uh, how the authors, what the authors are trying to get across. And uh, there are different ways that repetition is used in the Bible. We'll talk about a couple of them this morning because they come up in the passage, but This is one way when you use kind of a repetition of thought, um, but you do it in kind of like a little outline type of thing that forms like an arrow. So if you look at this, like if you look at the indentions, it's forming like an arrow that's pointing to the right. You see that? And the way to think about that is where, where the arrow points is the part that the author really wants you to get, right? The other statements, the statements on the outside of the arrow, those are the supporting statements, and he really wants you to understand the middle, right? So, so when, when Paul talks about, I've given everything to you, um, the point that he wants to get out of that is, how did Paul conduct himself, right? What did Paul actually do? What was Paul's heart behind what he was doing? And so we'll talk about these statements as we walk through this first point, but we're going to go through them uh, like in parallel. So we'll read verses 5 and 10 together. And then we'll read verses 6 and 9, and then we'll read verses 7 and 8. Okay? So let's do that. Um, So verses 5 and 10. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. And then verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So in verse 10, Paul uses three words. He says, we were holy and righteous and blameless. And there's, uh, there are subtle differences between those words. And we've talked about this. This is another kind of repetition. Um, this, this use of like three words to describe something, right? And there are nuances between those words. But what Paul is saying is, by saying it three times, by every observable measure that you had, As people in Thessalonica, by everything you could see, you saw how holy and righteous and blameless we were. You saw that everything we were doing was above reproach. You saw that. And not only did you see that, but God himself has also witnessed the places that you can't see. Right? Remember in verse 4, God is the one who approves our hearts. He sees inside of us. So not only were the things that you saw above reproach, but even the things that you couldn't see were above reproach. And Paul's not saying that he never sinned, but he is saying, as far as it depended on me, as far as I could tell, as far as God is concerned, everything I was trying to do, I was doing from pure motives. And I set up all the way that I could to make sure that nothing I did detracted from the message of the gospel. Right. That's Paul's holy conduct. So he says, I lived this way in front of you. You are witnesses and God is a witness to that as well. So Paul. So if that's what it was, what could Paul have done? What did he actually do Um, in verses six and nine? uh, Read these along with me. Nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, how we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We mentioned this, that Paul was kind of the original uh, bivocational pastor, as it were, and we talked about the context in which he was ministering, right? Remember Thessalonica is a melting pot, Uh, it's a cultural epicenter, Uh, it is not unusual for any of these uh, cities in Macedonia and what's called Achaia, which is Greece, for you to have itinerant philosophers, itinerant preachers, who are proclaiming their own truth, right, what they see, and then deriving a living from it, right, right? And what Paul is saying is, even though by virtue of God's call to me as an apostle, even though I had the right to make a living from you, I chose not to exercise that right so that you wouldn't confuse the message that I'm preaching with anybody else's message. I wanted you to see that I'm preaching it because I love you, because I want to preach it to you, not because I'm gaining anything from you by doing so. I'm giving everything I have. Including the fact that I could have chosen to make my living from you, but I chose not to avail myself of that. So that you would see Jesus magnified. And it's not just his own sacrifice. That's what's crazy about it. So we always think of Paul, um, and I missed this really the first time I read this, to be honest, right? Notice that Paul's not the only apostle in the passage. It says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Jesus, right? It's apostles in the plural. That means at the very least, it's Paul and Silas who are the two original who set out, who were commissioned to do it, could also include Timothy, right? So it's not even just Paul who's making the sacrifice. It's also Silas and Timothy who are doing the same uh, in trying to minister the gospel to them their leadership doesn't create a burden upon the people that they are ministering to. Um, And that's not even just in a material way, right? That's one of the things Paul's talking about here, right? He says, you saw our toil, how we labored day and night. But he's also talking about, back up in verse 6, how he says, we didn't seek glory from any of you either. We didn't seek any glory from you. And he's going to show you why in just a second. But think about that statement, right? I I am the apostle, right? I'm the one bringing the message to you. And yet I'm saying, I don't need anything from you in bringing this message to you. And in this way, he's actually um, demonstrating the problem that Jesus called out with the Pharisees in John chapter 5. And you can go back and read this. It's in uh, verses 39 to 44. But in verse 44, Jesus says, How can you come to me when you get glory from each other? How can you come to Jesus when you get glory from each other, right? And you see, this is what happens. The reason we say it's worth giving up everything you have, because when you are getting something from someone else, when you're seeking things from people around you, you're actually taking something away from the message in the heart of Jesus. And taking it for yourself. And by by shunning all of those things, what Paul is doing is lifting up the glory of Jesus. He's lifting up the mercy of Jesus, the magnitude of Jesus, the praiseworthiness of Jesus, the grace and the mercy of Jesus, and not highlighting himself. He's taking himself out of the way so that they can see Jesus, which is what they need to see. So part of the function of giving up everything we have, whether it's by right or by the things that we think we want, by doing that, we are freeing people up to see Jesus without ourselves getting in the way. And that's what they need to see. They don't need to see me. They need to see Jesus. And what's Paul's heart behind all of that? So this is what Paul did. This is how Paul conducted himself. What was his heart behind doing that? So look at verses seven and eight. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you, not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. If you thought about the quality, the first quality you would list in the first written account of apostleship in the New Testament, would it be the word gentle or would it be something else? Gentleness is so important in the Christian life. It's actually a requirement for office. And you guys might not remember this from when we elected our officers, right? But 1 Timothy 3.2 says, It is required of elders that they be not violent, but gentle. And if you heard if you, let's say you were on a search committee and you got a resume from a senior pastor and on his resume at the top he listed very gentle would that be at the top of your list to hire that man I gotta confess I, I don't think about it myself nearly enough but I read an article this week and it was a guy who was doing a review on gentle and lowly which we still have a few copies of out on the table right and he said, in addition to the, quali- you know, the qualifications for leadership, there are a couple of other reasons why gentleness is so important. And they fit right in with where we are. And the guy's name is Michael Kruger. You can read it online. Um, he said, one, the reason gentleness is so important is because the world by nature is not gentle. It's harsh. It's cruel. Right? Gentleness comes from the Lord, but the world twists it into bitterness and, and disdain and, and cruelty. Right. And you think about what's happening in Thessalonica, that's exactly where they are. Right. They needed gentleness because of how harsh things were for them. And you can turn on your social media and in three seconds you can figure out we need more gentleness. And you think about statements uh, like from the wisdom literature and I can't remember where it is. Right. But a bruised reed he does not break right? The ministry of Jesus itself characterizes this gentleness. In fact, that's the whole premise behind gentle and lowly is the one place where Jesus says, this is my heart, which is in Matthew 11. He says, right, take my yoke from me and uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart or gentle and humble in heart. Because ultimately gentleness is about humility, and it's about love. It's a reflection of those things inside of yourself. And if Jesus was so that way, should not that be our heart also? Gentleness is so important in our ministry to each other, in our ministry with people, especially with people with whom we disagree in the household of God. To have gentleness with them. But not only is Paul gentle, he's also loving. In verse eight, he uses a couple of words. He says, "We are affectionately desirous of you because you had become very dear to us." Um, I don't feel like the words there accurately capture like how mu- like, what Paul's really saying there. Like it reads to me a little sterile, like a little bit kind of like you know, dear sirs you know, like, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just my, my own reaction, but affectionately desirous, um, I'm not really sure how, what that connotes inside of myself, but the word is only used here in the New Testament. It is used a couple of times in the Old Testament, and most notably in Psalm 63, 1, which says, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my flesh faints for you, my soul thirsts for you, like in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's yearning. That's being affectionately desirous, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, I yearn for you because you had become very dear to us. And the word there is agapetos. And if you might recognize, I kind of said it a little weird so that you could hear the word agape in it, right? It means you are Beloved. You are the dear ones. You are dearly loved. It's a term of affection that applies. He's talking about his family. You've become family to us. In two or three months, Paul had fallen in love with these people. And because he loved them, he says, we were pleased not only to give you the gospel, but our very selves, our very lives he did life with them right he worked alongside them he shared meals with them he prayed with them he mourned with them he laughed with them right he gave of himself and i was thinking um who in my life had done this and i mentioned um one of my mentors bill um who did this and i was just thinking about like all the different times and the different ways that he gave his life uh, to me, even when I was being so incredibly not smart, um, just to, like, like so many things, so many different things, right? I was thinking about this one time where I, I went, so I was 22 or 23, um, right around there, and I drove two and a half hours to go on a date with a girl, first date. Driving back, it's like ten thirty at night. I have no regard for what he's doing. He's probably putting his kid, you know—he put his kids to bed. He's probably trying to go to bed himself. But I call him anyway, and I'm like, "Bill, this is the one. I'm going to marry this person." And he's like, "And this is not April. This is not April. This is a different girl." Um, and Bill, Bill, knowing me was like—he just listened to me. But of course, I was like way off base. Like I was just, I, I, there were so many things wrong about what I was thinking. But, but Bill was there. He was there. And he did these kinds of things with me all the time, right? I watched It's a Wonderful Life at his house with his family on Christmas. He invited me into his life because he loved me. He was happy to have me around interfering right When you are in that kind of community with someone, you are not a burden to them. They are happy to have you along, right? And that's the kind of community we want to create here amongst each other at Fountain Square, a community where none of us is a burden, even though all of us are partaking of one another because we are happy to share everything we have with each other because we love each other. That's what we want. And that's the kind of ministry that Paul says, this demonstrates the heart of Jesus. So Paul shows us in these verses, 5 through 10, it is worth giving everything you have. And here's how he did it. But why was he able to do all that? When we say, Uh, We said at the beginning, right, it's worth giving everything you have because he has given everything to you in Jesus. That's what empowers you to be able to do everything we just said, right? The reason you can give everything you have is because he has given everything to you. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He gives you another three, you know, another little triplet there, right? We encouraged you and exhorted you and urged you. He's saying everything that we did was pointing you towards the gospel, but specifically pointing you towards living in a worthy manner to the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And notice he doesn't say who called you, which is true. He has called you, but that call remains. He's emphasizing the presentness of the fact that God right now, today, in this moment, is calling you out of something into his own Kingdom and glory, right? That's the call upon Christians. And so let's think about that, just those two things, kingdom and glory, for just a couple of minutes, right? What is the kingdom? The kingdom, right, is the kingdom that is promised to Jesus, right? In Daniel 7, there will be an everlasting kingdom which will never pass away. And God has made all of those who believe in Jesus by faith, through his grace, to be heirs of the kingdom, right? Romans 8, God has made you co-heirs with Jesus so that you are not just a person anymore. You are now a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. There are no mere people or mere Christians. We are all royalty in the kingdom of God. And along with that, he has given you the inheritance of that kingdom, the inheritance which is eternal, which will never fade away, which can never be stolen from you, which is guaranteed because of the work of Jesus on the cross. That's the kingdom that he calls you out of. It's the kingdom he's calling you out of Colossians 1, out of the the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He says, as part of the kingdom, you will judge the world and angels with him on the last day, 1 Corinthians 6. And if you can even think about this, this is a promise that what it means to be in the kingdom of Jesus in Revelation 3, that on the last day, Jesus will grant to us all of those who by faith trust in Him, to sit with Him on His throne as the Father has granted to Jesus to sit on His throne and to rule and reign with Him forever. Are you kidding me? That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom He's calling you into. And because of that, right? Because of that, Paul says, you can give everything. But not only has He given you the kingdom, He's given you His glory. Right? So even beyond that, like, like, like you're saying, like Jesus, that would be enough, right? But it's not enough. And Paul talks about this, that the hope of the Christian life, right, in Colossians 1.27, is the mystery of Christ. It's the hope of glory. And Jesus says in John 17, I have given them my glory, the glory which I received from the Father, I have already given it, to, uh, to the disciples and all those who would come after them, all those, again, who by faith would come to me, I have given them my glory. What is that glory? Well, first off, it's his righteousness, right? Where he takes his perfect obedience, and the record of his obedience is given to us, it's imparted to us, it's credited to our account, even though we did nothing to earn it. But the Father looks upon us and sees the righteousness of Jesus. He's promised to give us a new body. And when he was resurrected, he appeared to the disciples and he said, this is what the new body's going to be like. And it's a body of power and it's a body not of weakness. It's a body of strength. It's a body of brilliance. It's a body that can never perish or degrade. And again, even beyond all of that, he's promised that we would shine like the stars in Daniel 12, that we will be like the stars forever in the brightness of the heavens. And again, to point back to Revelation 3, I mean, just think about the glory of this for just a second. That Jesus, who made the universe, who sustains the world by his own power, who needs nothing from us, promises that on the last day when we all stand before Jesus, he says... I will confess your name before the Father. The creator of the universe will say, Dan, he's one of mine. And the Father will respond, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The glory of being known and loved by Jesus. It's the glory he calls you into it's a glory in which you stand and because you stand in that glory you don't need to seek it from anyone else because you already have it so because he's given you everything you can give everything you have in return I was trying to think of different people across my life who had demonstrated this, like these different things to me. And I'll close with the story of Frank. Um, Frank was an old pastor of ours. When we first came to Birmingham, he was kind of on his way out. He had been in ministry for 40 years. Um, Planted a church that grew to be very large. It's probably like 4,000 members. and Frank and his wife, Barbara, if you met Frank on the road, like, um, he's not an imposing presence. He's not tall. He's short. He was a Navy fighter pilot, but he doesn't really talk about it that much. Um, he's very meek um, and unassuming. And uh, at, at his retirement service, our sanctuary held maybe 3,000. There were all kinds of people standing. It was probably 3,500 people there. One of the speakers asked, if you've ever been in the home of Frank and Barber for a meal or a Bible study, would you please stand? And I think I was the only person sitting. And I saw in that moment a picture of what this kind of ministry looks like, right? Frank is not particularly charismatic. He's not, I mean, he's a good preacher. He preached a lot of years, A lot—I learned a ton from his sermons, but he's not like you would go to him and be like, this is what I need to learn, right? But what Frank did is get up every day and pray at 4 a.m. for all of his people. What he did is have people into his house day after day after day. What he did was give of his life and himself. And in the end, People saw Jesus. And I tell you guys that time after time, when we look at the people that we want to emulate in our lives, we look at the ministry, look at the heart of Jesus, we look at what Paul did and how he emulated Jesus. It is the ones who gave everything they have because they understood that they already had everything in Jesus. Those are the ones that shine forth Jesus most clearly and not themselves. May it be so for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we do just ask that you would be pleased to give us the spirit of gentleness. Like a nursing mother... who is more gentle than those who are holding young children and babies may we have that kind of gentleness with each other may we be pleased to have the kind of community that's characterized by sharing of our whole lives and not just the pieces that we want to share father may the world see this love and this gentleness and may they see it and long for it and say, yes, that is what I want because that, that Jesus, he's got to have something special. In his name we pray, amen.